It's the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of mankind. It's the beginning of sin. We already saw in the first part of Genesis when they fell in the garden. Genesis recounts the beginning of God's plan for salvation through the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3. We saw the beginning of an organized rebellion against God and human government. We saw the beginning of a nation, and we are witnessing that in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now his sons, his children. To my right, to your left, on the steps of the stage, we have a little chart for you to make reference to the sons of Jacob. I should say the sons because we're going to spend most of our time with the sons. There is a daughter, uh, Dinah. She's mentioned also on the chart. We'll get to her tonight, hopefully. But you're able to see that Jacob had his sons and daughter and through whom they came, which of his four wives they came through. And so you'll be able to make reference to it uh, tonight and also for the future. Now, we left off with a kind of a quick reading of verses 31 through 35 of chapter 29. Let me just, let's just recall Jacob. Jacob was a con artist. I like to look at Jacob, this is my reference, as the Eddie Haskell of the Old Testament. He was a real smooth talker, a real manipulator. He wanted to get his way, and he wanted to help God out. And it got him into a lot of trouble. The consequence for him going ahead of the Lord is that he had to split rather rapidly because his brother wanted to slit his throat because he ripped off his blessing. He deceived his father. And so under the cover of night, he had to flee down, or I should say over to Laban's house in Mesopotamia. But though he ran, he couldn't run from God. He could run from his problems, and yet we see his problems follow him all the way to Mesopotamia. David said, where can I flee from your spirit? Or where can I go from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand will lead me. I can't leave you, God. I can't split from your presence. So he tried, but... The night that he was all alone, he saw a dream. And in his dream, he saw this ladder, or better translated, a stairway from heaven to earth. And the angels of God were going up and going down. And God was at the top of the stairway. When he woke up, he went, this is awesome. God is in this place. But I knew it not. I know it now, but I knew it not then. And he had an encounter with God. And God got his attention. God wanted him to know that though he was running away from his problems, he couldn't run away from God. Moreover, God promised to lead him, to bless him, and to multiply his descendants. Um, when he gets over to Mesopotamia, he sees Laban. But he also sees a cute girl that he wants to marry. Her name is Rachel. And he says, tell you what, Laban, I'll work seven years if I can marry your younger daughter, Rachel. 
Laban was also a smooth talker. In fact, he was the master con artist. He could outdo Jacob. In fact, Jacob really refines his skills of being a conniver from hanging around Laban for 20 years. Laban says, sure, man, work for me. So he works for seven years. At the end of seven years, he pulls a switcheroo on him. Instead of giving him Rachel, he gives him the oldest daughter who is not as attractive as the younger daughter, at least to old Jacob. But the wedding night, because she was under the veil of a Mideastern dress, pulls the switcheroo in the morning, wakes up and finds it's Leah, her older sister, not the younger sister. Now he learns a lesson about the custom of the firstborn. You don't steal the blessing away from the firstborn, which he tried to do from his brother. And so now he learns the lesson Running away from one problem, he has a whole lot worse as he's married to what he would consider the wrong gal. Laban says, not to worry, not to worry. Listen, work seven more years and you can have the younger one. Fulfill her week and Rachel's yours. So he goes for it. Now he's got two wives and he's got double the problems. He is soon going to have four wives and will quadruple the problems. Not because of the wives, mind you, but because he's a man laden with problems. And relationships happen to be his weak point. He's good at lots of things. He's a good cook. He could make great red lentil stew. Yeah, he was a great manipulator. He'd probably make a great politician. But what he lacked was the skills and interpersonal relationship and his family suffered. It's important that you realize that. The heroes of the Bible were not flawless. They were marred by sin and failure like you and I. That's what I love about the Bible. I absolutely love that. As I look at the list of the sons of Jacob and I look at their background, all of a sudden, I can relate because I know that I am not perfect. I am flawed. I have defects like crazy. And as I read the Bible, the Bible does not portray the heroes as flawless. It's not a biography where you leave out some of the facts and just embellish all of the good facts. It tells you that they were creeps like you and I. And that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. I happen to like that. Because there's hope for me. If it were the other way around, I'd think, oh, these men had halos on. They had to polish them wherever they went. Their wings grew a little bit too large for them. I could never attain to someone like that. But as I read the Bible, I find out that they were basket cases. Connivers, con artists, men of the flesh that God took challenged and changed for his glory. Jacob was one of them. But he has a problem family, and tonight we're going to see a problem family, a family in crisis. Now, I think it's safe to say that in this country, there is a crisis of the family, more than ever before. It is estimated that about 10% of the families in this country fit into what we would categorize as the traditional family the Aussie and Harriet family. Woman is the homemaker who stays home and cares for the children in the home. Husband is the principal breadwinner, provides for the family, about 10%. Children 
in this society are becoming more and more expendable, are they not? I was reading through a medical journal and there was an interesting excerpt in this medical journal from a babysitter who was speaking to her friend and said that this babysitter, she said that she was offered a position as a permanent babysitter in a family to watch the children all day long for 400 bucks a week. You thought, man, I don't know if I could pass that one up. That's pretty good. And the couple said, you're going to watch the children all during the day until 6 o'clock. At that time, someone will replace you, a second babysitter, and watch the children throughout the evening. It was interesting that the article went on to say who this couple was. They were both psychologists. And the mother was a child psychologist. And yet her own children were completely neglected. There needs to be a push back to family values. Unfortunately, the consensus of this country is moving further and further away from family values. It's the new family, man. The family is redefined. And in some contexts, I understand it is redefined by divorce or by death or by circumstances that allow families to not be the traditional family. But this idea that the tra traditional family should almost be outlawed and all of these special interest groups that lobby... Now, I don't want to get too much into politics here tonight, but I personally believe that this nation is on a downward slope fast and one of the reasons, if not one of the symptoms, is the loss of the traditional family. This country was based upon the family. It was God's first institution. As the family goes, so goes the nation. All a country is is a conglomeration of many families. And the health of the nation is indicated by the health of the families within that nation. One historian remarked, on the reasons for the fall of the Roman Empire. Interesting, they were not from outside forces, aggressors during a war. But this man noted that number one, it was the undermining and the of the dignity and the sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society. Number two, higher and higher taxes. This is Rome. The spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. Three, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more exciting, more brutal, and more immoral. Number four, the building of great armaments when the great enemy was within, the decay of the individual responsibility. Five, the decay of religion fading into mere form, losing touch with life and losing power to guide the people. Boy, that could be a news article from a modern newspaper in this country. Now, way back in the Old Testament, Jacob was having trouble with his family. He married Leah, but he didn't love her. He got Rachel, who he loved her. And there's this tension between both of these wives. And you can understand, by the way, God never endorses polygamy. It's here in the scripture. They did it, but he never wanted it that way. The Bible's honest about it, but that's not what God's intention was. And there's a problem because these wives aren't getting along. Leah knows she's unloved. 
And so God blesses Leah and opens up her womb and she gets to have kids. Rachel, receiving the love from her husband, for a while is unable to conceive. Now, in the ancient societies, especially in the Middle East, for a woman not to bear a child was considered a curse from God, a disfavor that was considered a divine disfavor. And so we read in verse 31, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Leah was barren. And so Leah conceived and bore a son, called his name Reuben. Now notice that in every one of the kids that she names, there is this yearning to be accepted and loved by her husband because her family has the tension. She said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction, therefore my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. Verse 34, she conceived again, bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I bore him three sons. There's an underlying principle here. Every human being has the desire to be loved and accepted and approved. We need that. We need our dad to say, Good job, son. I love you. I accept you for who you are. You are significant to me. You're important to me. A wife needs to feel secure in the love of her husband. There is this yearning, deep yearning to be accepted, to be loved. When a person doesn't get it, it's dangerous. It's dangerous when a person will go to almost any expense to get approval. It becomes a curse feeling insecure, feeling unloved, going to almost anyone to get the pat on the back, mistaking almost any overture or any communication as a sign of disapproval. Oh, I didn't like the way she looked at me. Oh, she must mean something by that. And there's some people that are so deeply insecure because they lack that acceptance that they see everything as a rejection. Leah is sensing the coldness from her husband and so she's naming all of her children reflecting the pain and also the hope that she has for the love because she doesn't feel it from her husband. Now, obviously, Jacob didn't show her much love. So I didn't want you to begin with. You know, it was just, your dad ripped me off, so I'm stuck with you. How would you like to live with that kind of a guy for the rest of your life? Wake up and says, oh, I'm stuck with you forever. I don't love you, but we'll stick it out together. That's a horrible way to live. Horrible way to live. Jacob, it says it here, loved Rachel and uh, did not love Leah. I'll tell you something before we move on. Husbands and wives, one of the most important things in a marriage is how we resolve conflict. The question isn't will we have conflict. We all have conflict. Man is born to trouble. The book of Job says, as surely as the sparks fly upward, in some marriages there's firecrackers, in fact, atom bombs. A lot of sparks. You get the couple together, it's volatile. We all have conflict. The question is, how do we resolve the conflict? Do you resolve the conflict? There's lots of ways that couples resolve conflict. Some of them blow up. They're the volcano. No, I should just say, they're the firecracker. They just have a short fuse, they blow up. Something upsets them, they yell. 
Others are more like the volcano. They just kind of let it simmer, let it simmer, let it simmer until eventually they explode and take half the house with them. (laughs) Instead of communicating how they feel and bringing it to resolution, they let the sun go down on their wrath and they become bitter, angry, and usually they have a short lifespan because you just can't handle that kind of conflict living inside of you for very long. It eats at you. Others, when there is a conflict, use the cold approach, the cold shoulder. All of a sudden, she or he, you know, well, what's wrong? Nothing. Are you sure? Did I offend you? (laughs) No. Well, let's talk about it. Nothing to talk about. And then it becomes almost impossible. You can't snuggle a bobcat. There's that conflict, and and they know there's a conflict. It's conflict without resolve. Resolve is important. Bring it to a resolution. There was conflict from day one in this family, not only between Jacob and Leah, but between Rachel and Leah, and eventually Rachel and Jacob. And then all the kids will follow suit. Kids watch that conflict, and don't, don't, you know, oh Lord, protect my child from this conflict. They're going to have some of that. They need to be taught how to resolve it, and they are usually taught it by role modeling. She conceived again, verse 35, bore a son, and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, or praise, and then she stopped bearing. Now the firstborn, Reuben, will not accept, I shouldn't say that, he will not be able to bear the responsibility and the blessing of the firstborn. They will transfer to Judah. Judah will become the messianic line, the line of blessing. King David will come from Judah. Jesus Christ will come from the lineage of the tribe of Judah. Reuben will forfeit his right as being the leader of the home because he will commit incest in chapter 35 with his father's concubine Bilhah, which we are just about to read. Now, when Rachel, verse 1, chapter 30, saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. There's another conflict. There's an argument. Now, how does he resolve the conflict? Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? It's a low blow. Hey, God's done this to you. And remember, their view, their thinking, is that children were a blessing from God. The lack thereof was a curse from God. Hey, God cursed you. So he's using God, really the name of God, to vent his anger. She said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go unto her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may bear children by her. You know, it's interesting. Have you noticed so far that all three patriarchs have had problems having kids? Abraham did. Abraham, you're going to have a kid. Yeah, right, God. You've said that for a long time. I'm now about 100. But he did. He had a child. How did they resolve that conflict of not being able to bear children? Well, take Hagar, man, the Egyptian. Have kids by her. And they had Ishmael. Isaac married Rebecca. Rebecca had problem having kids. So just so you don't think that infertility is just a modern problem, it happened way back then. What did Isaac do? He reverted to prayer. 
he pleaded to the Lord that God would open up her womb, and God did, and they had children. They had twins. In fact, God said, two nations are in your womb. Now Jacob has his wives. Rachel, the one that he loves, is unable to bear kids. What does he do? Instead of following his dad's role modeling, follows grandpa's. Does what Abraham does. Because his wife says, take my handmaid, just like Sarah did. She was strong-willed about this. I don't want to wait. Take this woman and have kids. Now, 1800, no, 800 years before Moses, there was a code, a law, called the Code of Hammurabi, which was a code of practice and custom that governed the people all the way from the Persian Gulf to the Caspian Sea to the Mediterranean, which said that a handmaid of a wife was entitled by law to become impregnated by the husband, and when she has the children, they become the legal property of the husband and wife. So, what was he doing? He was following the practice and the custom of his day. Does that make it right? No. Here's my point. Consensus is not to govern morality. Just because most people do it and it's right and they, who cares? It says in the book of Romans, be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't let what this society dictates as okay become okay for you. Or you are letting the world squeeze you into its mold. We are called to be different. God has a basis for morality. God has a code. And Jacob and Rachel decided to follow not God's, but revert back to the practice of the time. She gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged my case. He has heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan, or Judge. And Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. You see the animosity between these gals? They're having kids, kind of trying to have a race. Who can have the most kids? Please her husband and gain her husband's love the most. With great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. And indeed, I have prevailed. So she called his name Wrestling, or Naphtali. And Leah saw that she had stopped bearing and took Zilpah, her maid, now Jacob's just standing there going, what's going on? Am I in the place of God, you know, to do this? Now he gets the fourth. Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, a troop is coming. So she called his name Gad. Gadzooks, no, it means a troop. Also, Gad was the Babylonian name for the god of fate. Now remember, their background is pagan. They're Babylonian. And it could be, you're going to see something about Rachel. She's not as godly as you might think. She's going to steal her dad's little idols as they travel on a trip together. Oh, she wants to make sure that she has those little gods with her when she travels, those little statues so that she can have her own little worship system because that's her background. So Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. 
And so she called his name Asher. Asher means fortune. Now Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Let me tell you what a mandrake is. They were called love apples. They had a reddish-white blossom. They had a sweet, fruit-like taste. And they had long roots. They were considered aphrodisiacs and fertility drugs. I say they were considered that. These gals will do anything to have more kids. To elevate their own self-esteem and win the love of the husband at this point in this family. She says, give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, he, here he comes. He didn't know what this deal was. He's coming home from work a little bit, you know, just stretching his neck, comes in the door and he says, comes in, his wife says, hey, I just bought you off tonight. Well, let's go on. You'll read it for yourself. Jacob came into the field, and Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Interesting. The other gal got the mandrakes. They didn't seem to work. God listened. Notice the emphasis on God giving kids. God listened to her. And she conceived and bore Jacob his son, a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my hire because I have given my maid to my husband. And so she called his name Hire. That's what Issachar means. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now listen to her words. Now my husband will dwell with me. Because I have borne him six sons, so she called his name Zebulun. I want to contrast that with the next verse. She sees that God has not only given her children, but sons. Ooh, she struck gold. So far, no daughters. To her, that's a sign of God's blessing. The next verse says, Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah, which means judgment. Judgment. They have all these kids, Issachar, Asher. They have a girl, and they call her Judgment. In the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament, when a woman went into labor, of course, they didn't have ultrasound. They didn't know what kind of child they were going to have. But they would always hope for a son, especially the father would, to carry on the lineage, the family lineage. Now, this is not fair, nor is it right, but it just happens to be a fact. That they would prepare food and wine to have a major league party after she delivered the son. If it was a daughter, they pack the food, they pack up the wine, they go home. You've come a long way, baby. Jesus Christ came along and changed that for good. And so Paul says in the book of Galatians, there's not Jew nor Gentile, 
male nor female, Scythian, bond or free, we're one in Christ. God elevated through Jesus Christ the place of the woman to be next to the man. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus said, For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, the two shall become one flesh, reiterated God's directive in the book of Genesis. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Paul made sure that the leader of the church was the husband of one wife. Not two, three, four, that was never God's intention. The husband of one wife. And then governing his own household well, so that he is equipped to govern the house or the flock of God. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened up her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach. And so she called his name Joseph. After all of that time, after all of the mandrakes, after all of the conniving to get her handmaid to bear her kids, she finally has her own son. And she calls his name Yosef, which means God will add. God has given me my own son. And it was a prophecy. God was going to add another son, Benjamin. In fact, she would die because she has a rough labor later on with Benjamin as they leave this place and go to the land of Israel. By the way, Joseph will become the prominent figure in the last portion of this book. He's the hero. The first hero is Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. We'll read about his sons. And then Joseph will be featured more in detail later on. It came to pass... When Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you. Let me go, for you know my service which I have done for you. And Laban said to him, Please stay if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience. The Hebrew word says, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. That is great. I've learned something. I don't want you to go. Because as long as you hang around me, good things happen. God blesses me. That's significant. Isn't that what God promised to Abraham and all of his posterity? I will bless you and you shall be a blessing. That's really what we ought to look for. That really should be our attitude. Instead of God bless me. Come on, man, bless me. Bless me more. Many of us have joined the Bless Me Club. Our main directive is to receive something, to get blessed. But we should be blessed and from the blessing give and become a blessing to others. That's really where the joy is. It's really where the thrill and the excitement is, is when you are able to touch lives of other people and bless them and see them lifted up in the Lord. He says, man, as long as you're around, you're a blessing. Now, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, found that out with Isaac. As long as Isaac was around him in the country, he got blessed. Potiphar will find that out down in Egypt when Joseph hangs out at Potiphar's house. Everything that comes into his house is blessed because of Joseph. God blesses some people because of others. It's great. So he said, name your wages and I'll give it. Jacob said to him, you know how I've served you. And how your livestock have been with me. For what you had before I came was little, and now it increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. Okay, now he's getting a little braggadocious. 
He's kind of complaining, actually. He said, listen, I've worked long and hard for you, and all I have is two wives, a couple handmaids, and 12 mouths to feed. I want something from it. I've worked hard, and you're blessed because of me. Oh, knock it off. And now, when shall I also provide for my own house? So he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. Now, these guys didn't hit it off real well. One was a con artist, the other was a con artist. They were trying to out-manipulate each other. And you're going to notice throughout the rest of their narrative that they just argued the whole time. You won't give me anything. If you'll do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through your flock today, removing from there the speckled, the spotted sheep, and all the brown ones among the lambs, the spotted, the speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it's with me. And Laban said, Oh, that it were according to your word. In other words, I don't believe you. I don't know that I can trust you. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled, spotted, and the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had some white in it, and the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hands of his sons. And he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar, and of the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them, that is, he peeled the bark off, and exposed the white which was in the rods, that is, the little sticks of wood. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs, and made the flocks face toward the streaked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. But he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with any of Laban's flocks. As you read that, you're wondering what on earth is going on. Okay. I have to confess, I don't know. <laughs> but I'll tell you a little bit of what I learned, which isn't much. It was thought probably superstitiously, that the embryo inside the mother was affected by any strange sight that she noticed during the time of conception or pregnancy. Now, he knew that they were all going to want to go eat food, and so where they would usually conceive at the feeding area, he would set these rods, thinking, you know, this is going to startle them. He'll set certain of... Uh, uh, the males toward certain females put the rods in these uh, watering troughs and that perhaps they would see these be startled and this strange sight would help in the conception. Now that is a possibility based upon the um, superstition that he may have held of the time. Or some scholars suppose that it was supernatural, it was divine, that God gave him this direction Obviously, there's nothing in the rods by looking at them that scientifically, empirically, that you could show would cause this to happen. But so that Jacob would know it was a supernatural intervention. God caused this weird thing to happen. I don't know. But 
That was one of the beliefs of the time. He set them out, and, uh, and it happened. It came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived, that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters, so that they might conceive among the rods. When the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger's were Jacob. This guy is a master craftsman manipulator. He's getting all the strong ones. He worked out the deal with Jacob, but Jacob really didn't quite know what he had planned. And the man became exceedingly prosperous, had large flocks, female and male servants, camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has acquired all of this wealth. In other words, Jacob ripped dad off. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, that is his facial expression, his body language. And indeed it was not favorable toward him before. A couple things I want you to notice about how God guides people, how God leads us. God will often lead us first by putting a strong desire in our heart. The scripture says that God will give the desires of our heart. That does not mean whatever your heart desires. Believe me. I think what that means is that God will implant in your heart His desires and they'll become your desires. God will stir you up. Now be careful that the desires you have are to be God's desires, God-given desires based upon prayer. But he, he wanted to go home. He says, listen, Laban, I've been working for you a long time, and I worked hard, buddy. I want my kids, I want my wives, and I want to go home. And I believe God put the desire in his heart. That was number one. The desire was there. Number two, the circumstances surfaced to give him the idea that, hey, I think maybe God is in this. All of a sudden, things started turning sour. Things really weren't working out for him. Laban didn't like him much anymore. Laban's kids started accusing him. And so the relationship started turning sour. So he had the desire in his heart. Circumstances surfaced that were not favorable circumstances. But they were showing Jacob, hey, i got to get out of here. And third, the word of the Lord came to him. Which helped to align his desires and the circumstances. And so we read in verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Don't you hate it when things turn out bad for you? Have you ever thought, however, that God's hand is in it? Maybe you lose your job. You think, God, how could you? Well, have you ever thought that perhaps God may have a better job for you? Maybe a better work environment. Maybe higher pay or whatever else. Maybe you'll meet somebody there that will lead to other things. But as long as you have the job that you've had, you're going to stay right there and not look for anything else. Now you don't have a job and suddenly you're in the place where you are looking for that job God wants. It could be that God has something for you. Maybe you had a desire and you thought, you know, I need a change. And all of a sudden you walk into work and say, you don't have a job. God, why? Wait a minute. You just cried for a change. <laughs> I answered your prayer. I'm changing you. And I'm changing where you're going to be. And then God will begin to reveal His plan to you. That's how I ended up here. 
You know, after years of surfing, I came out of the ocean, and I remember walking on Huntington Beach saying, you know what? This is a great life, man. Get up in the morning, surf from whenever I get up till sometimes 11 o'clock, go to work around noon, get off in the afternoon, do a little bit of medical call. What a great job. What a great life. It had dawned on me. I said, you know, Lord, this isn't what I want. I want something more. I want to serve you. God started stirring up my heart to get out, to leave, to go somewhere else. Then circumstances arose. You've heard about a lot of those circumstances. And finally, I believe the Word of God came to me through unusual circumstances. They aligned up and I just said, I'm going for it, man. But God will often begin with that desire. Now the Word of God comes to him. And God promises, I'll be with you. Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock. Now, Jacob at this point feels, I'm out of here, but I got I to gotta tell my wives. Because after all, I'm having a problem with Laban, but these are Laban's daughters. So I got to make sure, I got to talk it over with my wives. At least he exhibits some kind of leadership here. He said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me before, uh, as before, but the God of my father has been with me. Now he's getting a little bit better at least, a little more spiritual. And you know that with all my might I have served your father, yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to hurt me. I think that's a good balance. You might say, my boss ripped me off, it's not fair. But God. Hey, at least you're alive. At least you get wages. At least you live in a house, you've got a roof over your head. How about giving thanks to God for what you do have? Even though people haven't been square with you, God has preserved you and protected you. This guy ripped me off. He lowered my wages ten times. But God, he has been with me. And you know, oh yeah, but God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. If he said the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock from your father and given them to me. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes, saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. And the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. So he attributes his prosperity unto the Lord. Just another remark he noticed something very important about communication. The countenance of a person is very important in communicating. Though Laban may have said something, his eyes revealed something else. His countenance, the look on his face, his body language, maybe the tone of his voice. Jacob thought, uh-oh, something's wrong. For instance, you could say to your wife, you look great. Or you could say to her, you look great. Same words, different meaning. Or you could say, don't you look great. Or by your eyes, you can communicate various things. That is why God tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I've got a message for you to deliver to the people. Do not be afraid of their countenance. As you look at them, don't be afraid. Now, this is something I think that every public speaker has to learn. 
Because as a public speaker gazes over an audience or a pastor over a congregation, from this angle, it's very interesting. It would be great if there was a mirror and you could see looks on some faces. Oftentimes, those who are young in the ministry will come and they'll say to me, oh, man, that was scary. I don't think people like it. I said, why? So we had to look at the looks on their faces. I said, listen, it could be a contemplative look. It doesn't mean it's uh, something that they disapprove of. Just because somebody sits there and goes, that's generally the look that people have in an audience. But it's always good for a public speaker to find certain ones in the congregation. We used to have a gal in the church that would always take notes. And you'd always see her and she'd go, yeah. She'd always be into it. And I'd always look for her because those are the encouraging ones to find. Look at the countenance of those who are, yeah, right on. Oftentimes I'll look for Jesse. Is Jesse around? Oh, there he is. Great, because he's got the countenance. He's always into it. But God said, now, Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their faces, of their countenance. Because the countenance, the body language conveys so much. The eyes, the way something is said, the look on the face. Jacob noticed that his countenance had changed. And he says, you know what? Your dad's got a different look. He's looking at me weird now. I don't think he likes me. I think it's curtains. But besides that, God's blessed me. An angel told me so. We're out of here. <laughs> Verse 13, the message God told him is, I am the God of Bethel. What happened to Bethel? He saw the angels going up and down on the stairway. Where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now rise, get up out of the land, return to the land of your kindred. Now Rachel and Leah answered him and said, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. What on earth are they talking about? They are stating a custom of the time. Remember it was the custom to pay a dowry? That is, the father of the husband-to-be paid the father of the bride-to-be some money. It was a dowry, alimony in advance. If he reneged on the marriage contract, they had some money. The father of the bride kept the money. Did Jacob have a dowry to give? No. What did he do? He worked 14 years. 14 years worth of wages should have been stored away by daddy for the daughters. And they're saying, listen, you didn't have a dowry. You worked and dad consumed all of our money. We don't have anything here. You know, we might as well go with you. We don't have anything here. Our dad ripped off our money. Laban was poor at managing money. He squandered it. As a lot of people are today. Some people, as a head of a house are just a fiasco when it comes to finances. And that's why they should find a financial consultant to find out how much should be given to rent or for mortgage and how much should be balanced for meals. And this, Some people just don't have those basic concepts. And though they might make a lot of money, they really don't have anything to show for it. Fortunately, my father was a whiz at managing, accumulating, and saving and investing in money. And so... Whenever we were in a need growing up, especially when my wife and I got married, my dad was able to say, now here's something we've tucked away for you, we've invested, so here, here's a down payment for your house, or here's something that you can... And it was always proved to be a blessing because he handled it well. Well, here these girls are grown up. They've got all their kids. Their dad didn't manage money well. They have nothing. For he has completely he sold us and completely consumed our money. 
For all these riches which God has taken from our fathers are really ours and our children's. Now then, and I like this, whatever God has said to you, do it. They were uncomfortable really with the idea of leaving home. That's all they knew was Padan Aram, the area of Mesopotamia. That was their home. They were used to being married there, having their children there. They've been there 20 years now with their husband. But they finally resigned the fact, hey, God spoke to you. Let's go for it. For a marriage to work well, a wife must allow her husband to lead. Oftentimes, women will say, I want a leader in the home. As soon as he makes the decision, they might say, what a dumb choice. How can I follow a leader like that? Well, that's a dumb thing to do. And so sometimes guys are frustrated because they want to lead. They really take the initiative. They're trying to make things that are the right choice. And often they will find that though she may say, I want leadership, she will not allow him to assume that leadership. Wives, I do feel for you. The Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands in all things as unto the Lord. Does that mean your husband's going to make right choices all the time? Believe me, no way. I know that from personal experience. I've made some lemons. And I've watched guys make some pretty dumb choices. Will God hold you responsible for the choices he makes? No. God will hold him responsible. God will hold you responsible for your submitting to his leadership. But he makes dumb choices. Let him. Let him learn from his dumb choices. Encourage him. Honey, I love you. It was a dumb choice, but I really love you. It's okay. <laughs> Wherever you go, I'll follow. Encourage him. Don't say that, but encourage him. <laughs> and they finally resigned to the fact, hey, listen, you're the head of the home. Whatever God has said to you, go for it. Encourage him in the Lord. Hey, honey, I'll do whatever, but you pray. You get God's mind. You get God's heart. Now, if you're a good husband, you will listen to your wife as well. You'll bounce it off of her. There's many times I feel like, man, I'm going to do something. And I say, Lenny, listen, what do you think about this? And I'll go, and she goes, I don't think it's a good idea. What? <laughs> what do you mean it's not a good idea? I'm just being honest with you. You asked my advice. I think it's, I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> well, now... I'll go away and I'll think about what she said. And as I see her side, I will say, you know what? She's right. It's a dumb idea. And that will help make my decision. I will consult because she does have wisdom. So for a husband to be the leader of the home does not mean that he's the exclusive decision maker. It ought to be a team. They ought to come to a consensus together. But ultimately... He is responsible to make that choice, and she's responsible to follow leadership. So Jacob rose up, set his sons and wives on camels. <laughs> Traveling was pretty tough in those days. Couldn't send her on a little 747, hop from Iraq over to Israel. They just had to get on camels. Honey, got the camel ready. Carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained and acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. 
Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel has stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob, this, this, guy, this guy is still wild. Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Syrian in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. And so he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river. Now, he's pulling the same thing he did 20 years before. How did he leave his home? Well, he fled with stealth in subterfuge because of the impulsiveness of Esau. Thinking, man, my brother's hot on my case. He's going to kill me. He could be bound to do anything. So he snuck away. Now he's sneaking away from Laban. Not knowing that his wife, Rachel, ripped off the images, the household gods. Now, what were these household gods? They were called teraphim, little idols placed in the home. The belief was they would protect you from danger. When I grew up, my mom would travel around with a little magnetic statue on her dashboard, metal dashboard, old car, and put the statue facing her. And you know, as a kid, now as a kid, I would think, why does she have the statue facing her? She had to have that thing pointed at the road, you know, so at least it can see what's going on, you know. If you want protection, you know, get a view. That, that was how I thought as a child. You'd say, Mom, turn it around. She believed that as long as she had that, she would be safe on the road. The idea that if you have the idols in your house, you'll be protected. All of a sudden, Laban wakes up. The idols, little statues are gone. Also, they would consult the statues. They would ask advice. And they would believe that they would get advice. Now, you can imagine how ridiculous it would look to walk up to a statue and say, oh, Excuse me, an idol. Um, wanting to make a decision, just wondering what you think. What is that? Oh, all right. You know, it's ridiculous talking to something that has not the capacity to do it, but that's what they believed. Also, there was a legal power involved in having household idols because they were given by inheritance to the children, and whoever had them had rights of leadership within the home and the right of inheritance within the home. She ripped him off. He was pretty angry. Laban was told on the third day that Jacob fled. He told his brethren took his brethren with him, pursued him for seven days' journey, and overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. <laughs> you know, as much of a creep as Jacob is, God is his protector. God protects him. Laban was going to kill him. I'm convinced of that. I'm going to kill that rat. He ripped off my grandkids, my daughters. And God had to stop me. Don't touch him, dude. Years ago, there was an American that was captured by terrorists. They threatened to kill him. The American and British consul were brought in to negotiate the deal, and they asked that the prisoner be brought out to the American and British consul to be used in the negotiations. They wanted to talk to him first. They brought him out. And the two fellows, one from America, one from Britain, covered, they threw the flag of Britain and the flag of the United States around the prisoner. And then they said to the captors, fire if you dare. And they wouldn't do it because the flags represented the country as an act of overt hostility. And the scripture says, his banner over me is love. God covers us with his protective blanket. 
And God has a hedge that is set. Now, there are times when God may remove it for his own purposes and for our own growth, but there is that hedge, even if you're not the most spiritual person. Now, Laban overtook Jacob. Jacob pitched his tent in the mountains. Laban, with his brethren, pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I have, might have sent you away with joy and with songs and timbrel and harp. In other words, he's manipulating again. I wanted to throw a party for you guys and you didn't let me, so I'm going to kill you. But God told me not to, so I won't do it. He was just basically very angry with him. But oh, how God loves his own. Oh, how God loves Jacob's. He was a liar, he was a cheater, he was a manipulator. He didn't love his family, and yet God protected him. You know that God's a God of grace, God's a God of mercy. Yet some people say the God of the Old Testament's a God of judgment, but the God of the New Testament, he's a God of love. They're both the same. God loves you. That is the message that the Bible shouts page after page after page. God loves us. Isn't it folly? Isn't it the height of foolishness? To not enter into the one who loves you that much, to a relationship with God who loves you that much, who would give you protection, forgive you of your past, change you in the present, and give you a future. And yet some people say, no, I don't think I want to commit my life to somebody like that. Too unpredictable. Really? With all that God has to offer you, I think it's the height of absolute folly and ignorance to reject a loving God. Yet God has been calling some of you, and for whatever excuse, you've said no. Some of you have said, I'm already religious. I don't need to come any closer. There's a lot of people that are inoculated by religion, and it keeps them immune from the real thing. But yet tonight you know that your heart is not satisfied. Not satisfied. Not satisfied. Not satisfied, not satisfied, not satisfied, not satisfied.